Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter is producing a firestorm of controversy, especially among journalists, political professionals, and academics. But how did Twitter become the preferred platform for journalists to interact with politicos and professors, the key conduit for research and opinion to make their way to media coverage, and the center of elite discourse? This week, I talked to Shannon McGregor of the University of North Carolina, the key expert on the role of Twitter in political journalism and campaigning. She finds that journalists treat Twitter as content to be redeployed for narratives and exemplars of public opinion, even if it is not representative of the broader society. We talk about the role of Twitter on the American left and right, the implication of Musk's policy changes, and the reasons we all have such a love-hate relationship with the platform. Here's our conversation. So let's start with your uh, recent article on legitimating a platform about the role of uh, journalism in uh, promoting tweets. Uh, what did you find and what were the big takeaways? Yeah, so we looked at a year of news stories and we had this sort of hypothesis that we wanted to test, which was that we thought journalists were treating tweets more like content that were sort of like pre-legitimated and authoritative rather than interrogating them like we would see in traditional uh, journalistic practice. And so in examining a year of news content from a variety of sources that included at least one tweet in them, um, I think the big takeaway that we found is that uh, two things. Um, one, that we did find that journalists treated tweets more like content than sources. Uh, there was often, the tweet was often the only way we heard from a source and there was very little sort of context around it. Um, often the tweet was the whole reason for the story existing, um, was like sort of the frame for the tweet. Um, and I think the implications of this sort of for journalism is that everything we know about journalism says that sources should be interrogated, right? Like the old adage is like, if your mother says she loves you, get a second source. Um, and we don't see that with Twitter. Um, and in some cases, that may not be a problem, like when politicians or, or figures who you already know are using the platform and you're using that as a source. But we saw it a lot of times with, you know, people that journalists might not know who they were, right, and whether they are actually who they say they are. Um, and in the end, we sort of argue, and I think that this suggests that journalists see um, Twitter and tweets as sort of like pre-legitimated, which transfers some of like their authority to the platform itself. Um, rather than journalists being sort of the authority of saying, like, this is what is real or good information versus Twitter being sort of the filter for that. So this builds on uh, some of your experimental work on how journalists use uh, Twitter, where you had previously found uh, kind of a divide among journalists, among those who uh, either treat it as uh, the source of uh, lots of ongoing information um, and those who are kind of left out of, of that loop. So uh, sort of prior to the latest uh, Musk ownership change, what, how did things stand uh, in terms of Twitter in the newsroom? I think that we continue to see the effect of it, right, in, in terms of shaping news. Um, when I've interviewed journalists also, uh, also, they've mentioned that, you know, in some cases, especially in the realm of like politics um, and, and sort of culture, that they see Twitter uh, as in some ways they're like assignment editor, right, that what's happening there is really important to cover. Um, but we've seen newsroom policies really change around that, right? Um, you know, so for example, uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post, obviously very sort of influential newsrooms in terms of not only setting the news agenda, but sort of shaping what journalistic practice looks like, have had um, struggles, right? With trying to sort of control or have rules around how they're 
staff and journalists use Twitter, um, you know, to have, you know, their own sort of opinions. Um, but we haven't, I don't think, really seen it change as a source very often. Um, it is still a place where journalists and I think even news organizations see that news happens. Um, and so uh, it's an important place, you know, for journalists to be for that regard. And for those who didn't follow that closely, maybe you can just talk a little bit about um, the, the sort of open conflict in newsrooms that makes its way to Twitter um, uh, sometimes and, and what effect uh, that might be having. Yeah. So, I mean, this will this stems from things like journalists sharing anything from them, sharing their opinion about something that's going on, you know, in the world, which sort of bucks against this, I think sort of outdated, but idea uh, that journalists should be quote unquote objective, right? Um, and to be objective would mean, I guess, in, in this sort of view to not have an opinion about anything, uh, to journalists sharing their own experiences. This woman who is a reporter at the Washington Post who tweeted about her own experience with sexual assault and how then that, uh, you know, shaped the way her editors thought that she could even be able to cover uh, stories that related sexual to sexual assault. Um, and so we've seen this sort of tension play out, but I think what we've seen play out on Twitter reflects what we've seen in newsrooms more broadly, which is this idea that if journalists have uh, a certain lived experience or a certain opinion about something, that there's this idea that means that they sort of can't cover it uh, in some objective way. And I think there's been a lot of pushback to that. And we've seen some of that on Twitter, but I think there's been a broader pushback to that sort of within the newsrooms writ large. And we saw this around uh, Black Lives Matter as well, and, and and issues around, you know, sexual and gender identity, that maybe, you know, journalists with a particular lived background or a particular identity might not be able to objectively cover these movements. And the argument against that is actually maybe those are some of the best journalists, right, to cover some of these issues because they do have greater experience and context um, around it. And, and so that's been happening in newsrooms more broadly, and we've seen that spill onto Twitter as well. You've also done a lot of uh, work on political professionals' use in social media. So uh, give us some of the background of how their use differs uh, from journalists or is similar uh, and maybe why they uh, became reliant on it as well. Yeah. So uh, in talking to people who have run political campaigns, uh, they use it because journalists use it, right? So when political campaigns wanted to um, shift a story or to uh, have something become a story, they would go to Twitter for that, you know, uh, as opposed to, um, you know, Facebook, where they would see, you know, that they were talking to more like regular people or their constituents, uh, or maybe going to places like Reddit, where they would be around their like hardcore supporters and and, and use it in that way. Uh, campaigns and, and political and I think social movements as well um, use Twitter because they know they can influence journalists and hence the news sort of almost directly sometimes uh, in that regard. And so they differ from journalists and using it because they're not trying to like get news or make news from it, but they're trying to use Twitter to sort of shape and become the news because they know that journalists uh, rely on it for what is going to become the news and how they report on things. And you've also done comparative uh, work, not comparative across countries, but comparative uh, across platforms. Um, and so you, you're sort of well positioned to uh, comment on how Twitter compares to these other platforms and why it has become this uh, place for kind of journalists, activists, po Politico uh, interaction, uh, even though obviously the audience is quite a bit smaller than some of the other platforms. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's a couple reasons uh, that it sort of became this place that's super important politically uh, and culturally. Um, one is because I think we see cultural and social leaders as well as journalists tend to be uh, like early adopters uh, of some digital platforms and tools. 
And so they were on Twitter first, right? Uh, and so it became uh, sort of culturally and politically important because of that. Um, I think another reason, and, and this even harkens back to the days when tweets were even shorter, uh, as a journalist, and, and same thing as sort of a strategic communicator, whether it's in politics or social movements, in both cases, you're trained to be like concise and pithy. Uh, in the way that you write. And and Twitter lends itself to that so much more than any of the other platforms, right? It's still primarily a text-based platform and it has to be, you know, short and pithy. These are the things that gain traction. And so uh, people who are sort of already trained to communicate in that way uh, flourished, right, on a site like Twitter. And so as the, both those things continue to, you know, develop as, as Twitter was sort of starting out and, and becoming more important, um, you know, those the sort of two groups of actors, I think, became... Uh, entrenched there. And then we saw this play out in terms of its political importance, right? If you have one space where uh, politicians, you know, people running political campaigns are and journalists are, whatever that space is, is going to be a really important space. And so Twitter became that, even though, as you pointed out, it's like a really minuscule portion of our population in the U.S. and any population of the, of the country or of any country that's on it, it's this really important population of people who are really elite uh, figures in our society. So our research by necessity is in the pre-Musk era of uh, Twitter. Um, how much uh, should we expect to change? Um, how much should we be reacting to, um, you know, fairly visible policy changes and changes in who's on Twitter and who's participating and who's objecting, um, knowing that, you know, things might not be changing quite as fast as, as we uh, sometimes expect in the moment? Yeah. Um... Oh, this is like a huge question. So I, it was, I guess the day after it was announced that, uh, you know, Musk ownership was like actually taking effect. Uh, there was this sort of, there was this night, it was a Thursday night. I remember that because I was at a conference and I like didn't go do anything. I just sat in my hotel room and was on Twitter because it sort of felt everyone was tweeting the, this like obituary to Twitter, right? It was like a, a massive eulogy uh, to what the site was. Um, and it felt like an important sort of moment. Um, people haven't left, right? Twitter is really still important. Um, and even though, you know, we've seen these changes, which I think um, have mostly not been um, positive in terms of uh, the way, because of the role Twitter plays in politics and, and by extension sort of our democracy, um, I think they haven't been sort of good in that regard. Um, but I think we also, uh, the I guess the swing between this like night of a eulogy, but everyone still sort of being on Twitter um, shows that I think uh, the impact has not necessarily maybe been as great um, as we thought it might be just in terms of as it plays out in sort of journalism and politics. Um, I think one of the biggest, um, you know, implications of this is that Musk has become um, very much more in the news, right? And and on Twitter, there's this sort of running joke of like, who's the main character, right, of Twitter, and there's always a main character of the day. Um, and Elon Musk has been the main character of Twitter now for, um, I think it's not even been that long, um, but a couple weeks. Um, and so I think, you know, like Trump before him, he has really been able to leverage his use of Twitter, and now his ownership of it, but, but more so, I would even say his use of it now as the owner to you know, become central uh, in news, to become central in politics and, and to be something that, you know, everyone is talking about and the news coverage of it seems to never stop. So what are the, the most significant of the changes that he's uh, made uh, so far and, and what effects uh, should we be looking for them to possibly have? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I think one of the biggest ones um, that we've seen recently um, is that he has sort of been, it's hard to say that there's even been any changes because the policies, even as he has announced them, seem to be very, um, both fluid, right, going sort of back and forth, but also it seems to be really operating on, um, I guess, like the whim of what he's, you know, feeling or being angry about that day. And so I think um, that's been one of the biggest implications, right, is that there used to be um, policies that had, you know, were definitely not in the past always um, enforced evenly or sort of, uh, you know, across different types of people the same way. But now it's really sort of uh, content moderation by one person. Um, and so, you know, uh, last week, when must ban journalists who were um, covering this Elon Jet uh, Twitter account and story, I think, you know, that at least to my eyes, was the thing that shook people uh, the most um, in terms of a decision. And I and I, I guess I want to put air quotes around decision because it wasn't a policy change, really. It was just a thing he did. Um, but, you know, temporarily banning journalists from the site, um, I think, has made us realize, or at least the main users of Twitter made them realize, like, wow, the power of one person in this case now as a sole owner without, you know, really a functioning board, um, without it being a publicly traded company, uh, dismissing, you know, tons of teams around trust and safety, what it looks like to have just one person um, making decisions on whims in ways that are really impactful, um, you know, especially when we see this around banning journalists who are covering something that basically must just didn't like. So he also uh, tried to promote some news stories about uh, Twitter through um, leaking some internal documents to selected reporters and uh, commentators. Um, and uh, conservative media treat, treated this as a series of big uh, revelations um, about uh, the t Twitter's policies surrounding the Hunter uh, Biden laptop uh, story in the New York Post uh, during the 2020 campaign. Um, so tell us a little bit about, uh, first of all, how that how this story kind of compares to how how usually have these kinds of stories go on Twitter and then the actual substance of it. Um, what, you know, what was revealed uh, in the, in those internal deliberations? Yeah. So um, this was uh, an interesting, uh, I guess, like crisis communications rollout, I would say by Twitter to leak these internal documents. Um, like you said, to uh, commentators, people in, you know, more uh, conservative media, um, I think roundly, especially on Twitter and within mainstream media, it was sort of a big nothing burger, right? Um, campaigns uh, reporting violations uh, of Twitter's own policy at the time to Twitter and having direct contact with someone at Twitter is pretty standard practice, not just on Twitter, but across social media platforms. Um, when you're running a presidential campaign, um, you usually have like a person signed to you within a social media company who uh, usually is from the same political persuasion as you. Uh, ostensibly, their jo uh, job is to, you know, um, facilitate sales, basically, of ads. And this was is true within Facebook and within Twitter and within Google. Um, but that also becomes the campaign's point of contact. So reporting things like tweets that are, you know, targeting the campaign uh, as violations of Twitter's own policy and having sort of a back and forth conversation is a really normal thing that happens. And I think anyone who knows anything about how platforms interact with campaigns rightfully called this sort of, you know, nothing, right? That this was not really some big revelation um, at all. 
Um, but I think it was an attempt by uh, Elon uh, to, I think, change the narrative around what uh, it was about his ownership at the time. Um, and I think also a way to try and uh, ingratiate himself with uh politicians and political commentators and, and activists and figures on the right um, that had seen Twitter under its previous ownership as a hostile, right, to conservative or right-leaning points of view. So let's delve into the substance a little bit more, because I know you've done work on how um, political professionals and these content uh, companies are trying to make these decisions real time in the middle of a campaign. So tell us how that usually works and how what political professionals are trying to get the social media companies to do and what how the social media company is trying to apply its uh, its uh, policies in the middle of a campaign. Yeah. So in the middle of a campaign, as I said, you know, you'll have someone at the platform sort of assigned to your campaign, probably solely at the presidential level, maybe covering a couple people if it's a, a more down ballot race. Um, that person's trying to make sure that you're happy because they want you to keep buying ads and spending money on the platform, right? Um, and so that person becomes your point of contact. So, for example, um, in, in another campaign, uh, and this was with uh, representatives between the campaign and Facebook, um, you know, people, uh, the a campaign reported, um, hey, my uh, opponent is sharing something that is misinformation and that violates a particular policy that you have. Why is it still up? Um, and this is, again, totally normal conversations that take place. And there's often, you know, daily communication between either someone working on a campaign or if they hire an outside digital firm uh, to liaise with platforms. Um, but what, you know, my colleague Daniel Priest and I have found uh, in doing this research is that the application of these policies is often uh, very interpretive, right, in terms of how it's happening. Um, you know, uh, I think platforms are trying to balance, uh, and they have not necessarily always done it well, but trying to balance, um, you know, trying to balance acting on their policies and enforcing their content moderation policies with trying to appear not politically biased, right? And, and when we see this in the sense of campaigns, this is really hard because where we have seen uh, in the, you know, in the last, gosh, it's been years now, uh, where we have seen most of the mis and disinformation stemming, you know, not just on platforms, but we see it on platforms as well, is from the right. And so there is this really sort of delicate balance that I think platforms are trying to, uh, you know, enact as they're engaging in these sort of uh, back and forth uh, with campaigns or with the digital firms that are running people's campaigns on these platforms. And I think what we saw in the so-called Twitter files was just confirmation, you know, of what we already knew, which was that these conversations take place and that, uh, you know, uh, a sales rep ostensibly for a platform who's talking with a campaign or working with a campaign can elevate those concerns, right, to other people within the platform, whether it's Twitter or Facebook, in a way that you or I would not have the ability, right, to be able to do it. If we have something taken down, we don't have sort of a direct line to anybody to, to try and get that adjudicated differently. So as you mentioned, there was a, a sort of a premature obituary uh, for Twitter, and uh, there is a real exodus of, of uh, some people uh, who are concerned uh, with Elon Musk's uh, policies. Um, but the alternatives um, aren't necessarily ready for prime time uh, uh, when it comes to Mastodon and, and Post was only allowing certain people on. Um, and it um, kind of copies um, what happened on the, the right, where the right left um, for Parler and Trump's own uh, platform. Um, perhaps uh, in response to, to the politics, the assumed politics of, of Twitter. So 
Um, talk about the alternatives that are out there, how, how they're different, um, and and why um, why maybe there's not kind of an obvious alternative to Twitter at this point. Yeah. Um, so you know, I'm on Mastodon, um, and I haven't tried Post yet. I think because I tried Mastodon first, and I just found it like sort of boring, right? And I think like one of the reasons that Twitter, you know, as, as we talked about earlier, has become this important platform was because it's not just journalists and politicians, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons, but there's also a lot of like cultural and social commentary, you know, celebrities, and it sort of brings everyone together in this space. And that's been one of the reasons that it's been so important. Um, Mastodon, the way it's set up, uh, not everyone is necessarily in the same space, right? You're on different servers, uh, depending on how you sign up and, and which server you choose to join. So it doesn't have that same cohesiveness. And because of that, I think it, A, limits sort of the interactions that have made Twitter really popular and really important, right, between people who are coming from totally different sort of places and backgrounds. Uh, but I also think it... Um, because not everyone has joined it uh, and because of the way it's sort of segregated um, by nature in terms of how you join and what server you're on, um, there's not this, there's just not this sense that it's like fun, there's no culture on it. I think also because a lot of people left Twitter um, because of, I think, you know, rightful concerns about, about less ownership of it. Um, it seems at least right now, it's like, it's very serious. Like, this is very serious. We're doing the important thing and we're leaving Twitter and we have to make this work. And I don't, I, I don't like disagree with that sort of point of view. Um, but because of that, it's not taken off, right? Uh, in the same way. Um, and I think, you know, I think, you know, you mentioned, you know, people on the right leaving for places like Parler or Trump's Truth Social. Um, yes, but political leaders who joined those sites, they stayed on Twitter for the most part, right? Uh, because that's where everything was sort of still happening. And I think we've seen the same with journalists, right? Are there journalists on these other platforms like Post or Mastodon? Absolutely. Have most of them left Twitter? No, right? And and the journalists that I've talked to just informally sort of since then in the, in the course of like doing interviews or, or talking to them, you know, at conferences um, have said, I mean, I'm not going to leave right now. Like this is really still important for my job. And for those, you know, in the space of politics, what's happening on Twitter, even with Elon Musk's ownership, is a story, right? Because of the impact that we know it's going to have on journalism and politics. Um, and so I guess that's a long answer to your question. But for those reasons, I don't think, you know, that we've seen these other sort of platforms really take off yet. So is the if the composition changes even even a little bit, um, would that change um, how Twitter discussions go? I know you have work on, um, for example, gender dynamics uh, between candidates and, and Twitter commentators. Um, so it might seem like if the, the people, some of the people went to Parler, that might change the, the discourse if uh, more of the left leaves for some other platforms. Even if those platforms don't take off, it might change the, the dynamics on Twitter. What do you think? I mean, I think we have, you know, in, in some sense, we have seen the dynamics change on Twitter sort of in both of those regards, right? When we saw a sort of exodus from the right or maybe a quote unquote exodus from the right. Um, and, and maybe the same with sort of the more left-leaning exodus to places like Mastodon or Post. I think the biggest changes are going to be around, you know, whether people still feel safe to be on the platform. Um, and, and, you know, unfortunately it's never really been a super safe space for women, especially for women of color, for people from any historically minoritized or marginalized background. Um, 
it is, you know, I think, you know, there's an argument that it could be less safe, right? Under Musk, as he's like literally dismissed, you know, the trust and safety team. Um, but it's never been a safe place. And I think so people's concerns about it um, as a person who has experienced, um, you know, targeted harassment campaigns on Twitter myself, um, for better or for worse, you sort of expect it. You know, and so the changes, if they happen, I don't think are going to, you know, necessarily drive people off it. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, um, I was at a small gathering, a, a conference that the Knight Foundation hosted. Um, and Yoel Roth, who is the former head of trust and safety uh, for Twitter, was there and he was talking um, about, you know, at, the, at sort of the end of his conversation with Kara Swisher was talking about, okay, well, when, when should we be concerned, right? Like when, when do, what are the signs that we should look for that Twitter is really falling apart? And he was saying things like, if you have protected tweets, meaning you're a private Twitter user, and all of a sudden those are gone, right? Like you're seeing, you know, people are seeing your tweets that shouldn't be seeing your tweets. That's like a fundamental core safety infrastructure feature that's falling apart. Um, if all of a sudden, um, you know, your DMs are open when you've had them not open, right? Some of these things he said, okay, these are the crisis signs that like Twitter is no longer safe from like, not only a sort of physical safety perspective, but like an infrastructural and data privacy perspective. He said, but honestly, a lot of those things are set up and automated. And so, you know, it will take a long time for those things to deteriorate um, unless they are sort of purposively disbanded. Um, and so, you know, I don't think that it will change too much, but I think if we see, you know, the exodus of, you know, huge swaths of groups of people, right? If like all journalists leave or most journalists leave, or like, you know, if the sort of like prominent figures of black Twitter all leave, these would be signs that I think would really change sort of the importance and discourse um, on Twitter. We haven't seen that happen yet. So some initial uh, Twitter meltdown reactions were sort of like uh, good riddance, especially in the journalism uh, world, um, where people seem to think that journalists spend too much time on on Twitter and editors make those claims a lot. So how much would uh, things change if journalists spent uh, a lot less time uh, on uh, Twitter? Or are there things that uh, editors are blaming on Twitter that, that maybe are, are not really about the platform? Both, <laughs> uh, you know, so sort of as we talked about earlier, these, um, you know, arguments uh, that we see in news organizations around reporters identity and, and backgrounds and what they can cover that exists off Twitter. We just saw it on Twitter. Um, and I think, you know, in the whole, I think for all the ways that journalists and everyone else, academics who are on Twitter complain about Twitter, um, I think on the whole, it has been really, really positive, right? So what will change, you know, if I think of some of the biggest stories and, and the biggest changes in our society over the last, you know, a handful of years, I, I see the role and, and research bears this out of Twitter in that, right? So for example, the, you know, larger movement for racial justice, of which of course, Black Lives Matter is a huge part of it. There's research, including by my colleague, Dean Freelon and, and by Sarah Jackson um, and others that shows how integral Twitter was to that movement becoming something that was discussed in the news, uh, that it changed the way news and, and, and news coverage discussed the movement for racial justice and discussed the way uh, you know uh, that police routinely uh, brutalize uh, Black people in this country. 
And, you know, we see this with the Me Too movement as well, how crucial Twitter was for that, for taking, you know, conversations and lived experiences that have certainly existed off of Twitter, but but Twitter was the conduit, right, to which journalists saw those things change. And, and so I guess I would worry that Twitter would become, if, or sorry, I guess I worry that if Twitter fundamentally changes or or if journalists leave Twitter and are not on it as much, you know, are there some positives? Probably, sure. Um, but I see it as keeping journalists in some ways even more siloed. You know, Twitter itself, of course, is a journalistic silo and, and studies have shown this as well. But it's still in, in many key moments has, has proven, a, you know, a channel through which journalism has changed and, and the ways that things are reported have changed. And I worry that, you know, without this sort of outside line, right, to people who aren't traditionally necessarily listened to in newsrooms or contacted by reporters, that we would see in some ways less representation um, in broader news coverage. So Twitter was also um, important to the rise of uh, the alt-right and uh, uh, far-right um, organizing. Um, they Maybe uh, incentivized to return to to Twitter in the in the Musk regime, he's directly reinstated um, some uh, figures. Mm -hmm. uh, so, what, what effects do you think that will have, and what's sort of the current state of um, uh, right wing organizing online and the the role of Twitter in that? Yeah, um, and you know, I'm glad you asked that question because it brings up an important point, which is that those very same affordances of Twitter and, and characteristics of Twitter that I just discussed as being so important for, you know, I would say like movements towards a more democratic uh, and equitable society are the exact same tools and affordances and characteristics that have afforded movements like the far right sort of pushing us further away from democracy and equitable society. And, and that's true across all platforms. And I think that's a really big challenge in trying to think about how to design social media that that doesn't allow sort of both of those things if we're interested in democracy. Um, but to your question specifically about the right, you know, we've seen, you know, some accounts, uh, prominent accounts come back, um, some not, right? Donald Trump has a Twitter account, it has reinstated and has not tweeted. Um, I think that's probably more um, financially motivated, right, to try and keep people on Truth Social uh, to hear what he's saying, at least directly. Um, but I, I think that, you know, some of that, the movement of, of uh, sorry, the moves that Musk has made to reinstate, you know, some of these far right accounts uh, is to try and sort of repair the image of Twitter among the right, um, because, you know, that's sort of the political bent that he's more aligned with. Um, but I, I think that it's going to be really hard to... Um, get people from the right back in mass uh, onto Twitter um, because it's been a while, right? And, and they become sort of comfortable in some of these other uh, sites like Parler or Truth Social. And I think there's a real skepticism uh, towards his motives in this regard from some on the right. Like, is he doing this just for financial reasons, you know, to, to try and uh, curry favor among the right and to try and, you know, ex you know, expand the advertising base sort of back into that regard. You know, I've heard concerns from that uh, from folks on the right. Um, but I think there's a skepticism into in terms of how long this will last. Um, and I think that's from the right on the left in terms of Musk's ownership. And so I think people from the right are worried about 
you know, coming back sort of in that regard. And, and also knowing that because, like you said, journalists have not left, that, that some people on sort of the left have exited Twitter, but not necessarily in mass, that these same dynamics sort of are going to play out uh, that in some ways have disadvantaged the right, at least on Twitter as compared to other platforms. Um, but I think it will I think it will be interesting to see, you know, sort of in what regard um, that continues to sort of play out, because it is one of the concerns that gets to the safety, right, that we were talking about in terms of, you know, targeted harassment, you know, or, or threats becoming worse. Um, than they sort of already are if there is this sort of great uptaking, you know, uh, by some of those on the far right back to Twitter. So Twitter has also been uh, central to complaints about wokeness and cancel culture, uh, and Elon Musk uh, apparently shares uh, those those concerns uh, and the ideas that I guess social ostracism and um, and cancellation outright decisions um, are common on Twitter and important um, culturally. But of course, uh, you know, immediately after declaring it a, a free speech zone, um, you know, he used um, more direct uh, tactics to uh, remove some people, at least uh, momentarily from from Twitter. So um, I guess comment on what we've learned so far uh, in terms of the, the role of um, Twitter in these dynamics uh, that people complain about, but also the sort of difficulty of, you know, making making the rules work um, w- without um, creating that kind of atmosphere with on on either side. Yeah, um, I mean, I think what we've seen in sort of the so-called wokeness and cancel culture uh, on Twitter um, really reveals uh, something that, you know, social psychologists and and social scientists know sort of more broadly, which is that, you know, that there can be this sort of um, mob mentality anytime you get a bunch of people uh, into one space who tend to share a view on something. Um, and, and this is just happening more publicly than maybe we've seen, you know, in other ways, which is, you know, why we're getting this attention to it on Twitter. Um, but I also think that some of those dynamics reveal what we were just talking about, which is that People who have not normally had a dominant voice in society and politics and the news have been able to use Twitter to call attention to inequities, to call attention to specific people or industries that have been harmful. Um, And that's decried by some as wokeness or cancel culture, you know, and, and others, myself included, would just call this maybe raising awareness or people suffering consequences, you know, from their actions. Um, and so I think, you know, but, but we've seen this play out, you know, on Twitter and, and on other social platforms and in society writ large. And I think what this shows is that um, this dynamic actually that my colleague here at UNC, Alice Marwick has talked about, um, which we, she's seen play out on Twitter and other platforms, which is called uh, morally motivated network harassment which is that when you can find a bunch of other people who have a similar view as you um, and you feel someone or some uh, group of people has wronged you, um, then you can morally incentivize one another to sort of excuse any harassment, right? Uh, that, that you may, uh, you know, target a, a particular person with. Um, and Twitter has been a place where we have certainly seen a lot of this. And this is both from people on the right and on the left. Absolutely. Um, and so, I think that, you know, one of the things that that the, that the ideas of these sorts of things playing out on Twitter is that it has made these ideas of um, social identity, 
you know, group norms, the ways that we can, you know, quite easily justify things that we might not normally justify when we're sort of in this group um, has made it really visible. Um, but this has always been a dynamic, right, that that societies and people have. And I think Twitter has just made it really visible. Elon Musk took over a company, uh, overpaid for the, the company by uh, general standards um, and has made decisions that don't seem to be consistent with making uh, future money. He's made the primary revenue sources, the advertisers mad. Um, he's uh, threatened some of the, the user base. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he also claims to be acting in the financial interest of the, of the company and, uh, of course, reduced staffing uh, quite, quite a bit. Um, so talk through kind of the, what were the pre-existing uh, financial problems uh, uh, that Twitter had compared to other social media companies? Um, and, uh, you know, how much can we say is, um, you know, driven by the need for uh, a new business model versus just uh, sort of the, the views that Musk brought to it uh, regard to politics and, and how he liked the platform to run? Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned before, Musk took over. Twitter had not really been doing great financially for a while. Um, like other social platforms, their primary stream of revenue had been advertising. Um, and it just doesn't necessarily lend itself as well uh, to advertising as other platforms for a host of reasons. Um, one of which being that the, you know, base of users is quite small, right? And and sort of niche compared to others. Um, and you know, I don't have an MBA and I've never run a company, but it certainly seems to me like the decisions Musk had made, has made since he took over would um, make those revenue streams that were already struggling even more so, right? As you said, you know, tons of uh, prominent advertisers have suspended their advertising accounts uh, with Twitter. Um, but I do think, you know, given their previous struggles, it does suggest that there might be um, room for sort of a change of revenue stream. Um, it seems clear that the pain for the check mark uh, is not going to be it uh, necessarily, right? That's not sort of been, uh, let's say, widely embraced uh, by those on Twitter and has caused all sorts of chaos, right? With pe people being able to appear verified that are not necessarily because they've purchased the check mark and et cetera. Um, and I, you know, I, I've been thinking about Twitter uh, and sort of how it might work and thinking about like sort of the proliferation of newsletters as well. Um, and, you know, we saw a little bit of this, right, this idea of potentially like a subscription model, right, of, of getting maybe uh, more or better access to some prominent, you know, users like journalists or politicians, um, you know, by sort of paying Twitter and, and by proxy them uh, some sort of subscription fee. Um, but I think it's been, you know, writ large across social platforms and even within the news media, it's been really hard to get people to pay for something that's been free to them for a very long time, um, you know, and, and we've only seen really a couple newsrooms succeed with this. Um, and I would say those are pretty niche newsroom products, right? Like the New York Times and Washington Post. Um, and so I think it's going to be it's going to be a really difficult road ahead. Um, I don't know what sort of financial model will work, um, but I'm not sure that uh, even just some from sort of a business perspective, uh, it seems to me at least unlikely that Musk is going to be the person to sort it out, uh, given the sort of financial struggles that some of his other companies have had as well, um, and given how much debt he has, even just in sort of running uh, Twitter or being able to acquire Twitter itself. 
Academics, of course, also uh, use Twitter uh, regularly, um, but they have also been uh, maybe among the first to, to leave uh, in response to uh, Musk's uh, changes. Um, so what's the future of academics on Twitter and how does it, um, how might it change the, the role of uh, academics uh, being involved in, in the media um, as, of course, a primary platform for academics to engage in journalists, engage with journalists as well? Yeah, um, I think, you know, personally, as an academic, this has been one of the things that I'm kind of saddest about with all the changes at Twitter, because um, academic Twitter has meant if I'm being honest, like a great deal to my career. Um, when I started grad school and started researching Twitter and everyone said I was sort of crazy and it didn't matter to research Twitter, um, you know, even just in the short couple of years that I was doing my PhD, the ways that Twitter has been important for me as an academic, especially as a junior academic and connecting with other people, learning about research. Like I have projects that I have co-authored, like friends I have made like because of academic Twitter. And so just personally, I like really mourn this. I, I'm not saying it hasn't been without troubles. It absolutely has. In some ways it has certainly exacerbated inequities within the academy as well. Um, but I also think it's been a really important way for people to sort of be able to connect and, and learn about one another's research, uh, especially sort of across disciplines. Um, and so I'm just sort of sad about that. Um, and I and I worry, you know, about the impact of it on especially other junior scholars or, or scholars from, you know, more historically uh, marginalized backgrounds, you know, not being able to sort of leverage the connected power of Twitter, right, to, to make their work more widely seen and to make connections with other important people just within the academy. And then to your second question about how it might change the way, you know, that academics have access to or interact with journalists, um, I guess that's another thing I'm really worried about. Like, I have definitely, like, been asked to write op-eds because of something I tweeted, right? Um, gotten to know journalists and, and they become both a source for my research and me a source for their news stories, like, through Twitter. Um, and I think, you know, just as it has in academia in some regards that, uh, you know, sort of the confluence of academics and journalists on Twitter has um, in some ways exacerbated existing inequalities of academic sourcing. I wonder, like, how will journalists find academics to, you know, comment on news stories, provide context or background for, you know, important things happening in the world, um, find people to write op-eds, you know, about things that they're related to. Um, you know, Google searches and using the same sources that they have, even if they found them for Twitter, is going to not continue to expand, right, those sort of list of sources or, or people that they're going to talk to. Um, and, and so I worry about, you know, the negative impact of that, because I think it will sort of, it might halt things where they are um, until some other alternative potentially emerges. What about the actual distribution of, of research? Um, it seems like Twitter has been playing a big role in uh, the, the rise of preprints being um, uh, incorporated into news stories. Uh, and of course, we just went through uh, a long uh, COVID uh, experience where people both complained about um, that uh, process, but also highlighted um, the potential to kind of get uh, evidence into the news. Um, so yeah, what, what's the role of Twitter in kind of the overall rise of, I guess, uh, evidence-based or data-based uh, journalism um, and um, kind of the overall relationship between academic research uh, and, and the news. 
Yeah. Um, I think it's played an important one, right? And I think that, you know, like I was talking about a minute ago, I think it's expanded the disciplines and the types of academics that journalists have talked to. Um, I think that um, sort of academics and, and Twitter being in the same place has, you know, allowed though for there to be context around things like preprints or not peer reviewed articles in a way that I at least just anecdotally don't really see. I don't recall um, sort of before COVID, especially uh, there being, you know, uh, context in the story uh, when a preprint was covered, although I will say that definitely did happen, maybe not as much in the medical uh, field, but certainly in the social sciences. And so I think it's led to a fruitful conversation around context, around what are the different sort of ways that academics put research out there and what do they mean and which parts of it should end up in journalistic coverage or not. Um, you know, in the same vein, I think that, you know, Twitter is is like the rest of our sort of world right now and that it's an, about an attention economy. And I think in some senses, uh, it's incentivized academics to try and get attention, right, from journalists and other actors. And so sometimes that means getting things out quicker or with less rigor, right, than we might, you know, normally hold ourselves to, uh, you know, in the academy. And I, I think that, you know, certainly is concerning, but I don't think, I don't think by and large that has been a huge problem, at least is not as much, you know, in the social sciences um, as it has been a way of sort of providing more context um, around these things. Um, and I hope that that, I hope that doesn't go away because I think it's important for us to, you know, at times share findings that we have that are really, really relevant as long as they're within the context, right, of that this hasn't been peer-reviewed, of journalists getting other academics to look at it. Uh, you know, I've been asked to do this uh, for studies that are being covered uh, in the news that haven't necessarily been through peer review. Um, is it a stand-in for peer review? Absolutely not. But is it, a, I think, an important development in journalistic practice in terms of how you know, science and social science is covered. Yeah, I think it has been, right? Um, and so I, I think that we can see sort of a net positive in that for sure. So a lot of people, including uh, all these people we've been talking about, academics, uh, politicians, and political professionals and journalists seem to have a very strong love-hate relationship uh, with Twitter, uh, along with uh, in this sort of meltdown period that you mentioned, along with all of the good written sweet, we should leave the place, uh, was a lot of people claiming that this uh, Twitter had been, uh, you know, transformational for their lives, that so much would be lost um, with its end. Um, and, you know, it's not unknown to have people change their views uh, on, on Twitter. But, but you know, the sentiment before that seemed to be a lot of this is a time waster and uh, uh, is doing a lot of harm. So why do people have um, those strongly ambivalent views uh, on the platform? That's such a great question. I think it's because maybe this is like the theme of this whole conversation. It's like, I think it's because Twitter contains multitudes, right? Twitter has done all these things that have been transformational in people's lives in the way that we've covered, you know, news stories, et cetera. But it's also been a place where you like have reply guys in your comments being like, well, what about this? Or, well, actually it's this. 
it's also been a place where there's been like really stupid and annoying like main characters of the day, uh, like the coffee bean dad uh, or bean dad. And, and, you know, so I think like because it contains all these multitudes, it's a thing that we can complain about, um, but complain about in a way that I think has brought the Twitter, usually brings the Twitter community together, right? Like shared venting if whatever profession you're in whenever people from the same profession get together is this shared venting is it complaining absolutely are all those people going to leave their careers no right like this is part of you know building a sort of group identity um is this venting and i think you know for all the ways that myself included you know have been like oh my gosh i can't believe i just spent an hour on twitter or oh it's such a drag to like say anything and be a woman on the internet and be reminded of what that's like, it has been so transformational. And I think it's both, you know, being able to complain about it in this sort of shared space and with all the shared means of the way that we do complain about things on Twitter is one of the things that's made it joyful and transformational at the same time. So you've uh, personally had to uh, react to a research uh, agenda to a changing uh, political atmosphere and a changing uh, media landscape uh, repeatedly. So this isn't new to you, but uh, talk about how, um, how you, you know, are a researcher in a world that's constantly changing and, and what you think that will look like uh, in, in the face of a platform that seems to be changing uh, quite quickly. Two things. One, both deeply contextual in that you know, my research on Twitter five years ago is about Twitter five years ago, right? And like even five years ago, it was a different place than it was before Musk took over. And I think that's important, I would argue, for like lots of media and social studies more broadly. Um, but it's certainly important in platforms, right? Like due to the pace at which they change and the way people use them and, and new ones emerge. Um, but I have also, and I, and I think, you know, this is not just me, but I'm speaking about my own research, have tried to make sure that, you know, my research that involves social media platforms or, or media um, speaks to larger questions uh, about society and politics and power um, in ways that the platform plays a role in, but also has sort of broader implications. Um, and I think what it means is that now we're all trying to figure out how are we going to recontextualize Twitter, right? Is this going to be a moment? Uh, is it going to fundamentally change the relationship between the press and politics as it plays out on Twitter? I, so far, I don't think it has, but but it certainly may, right? Um, and it certainly changed in these other ways that we've been discussing for the last little bit. Um, and so I think, you know, trying to understand how that context changes what we can and cannot learn if we're studying either Twitter data itself or studying, studying how people, different groups of people use it is going to be really important. Um, but I think, you know, studying media of any type and especially social media means that you have to um, understand what certain platforms are for, whether it's old ones or as ones change or new ones emerge. Um, so some of the things that I've been trying to pay attention to that, that are not Twitter for quite some time is also uh, more visual media. That's much harder to study, certainly from a quantitative perspective. Um, you know, Instagram, TikTok, uh, even Facebook are, are much more highly visual mediums. And, and the struggles around that, I think, are really important. And they're really understudied as compared to Twitter. Twitter is much easier for us to study because it's a, the data has been more available, but it's also primarily text-based. And so it's been easier for us to study. You know, one silver lining of this is that it um, may push 
uh, academics to study other, to overcome the hurdles that have prevented us from more fully studying other social media platforms because Twitter was so available um, and important, right, uh, in this particular regard. And so that could be, you know, potentially sort of some, you know, silver lining to all this chaos. Um, but I think it will take some time to to see how this shift changes the context and what we, you know, and how we might contextualize what's happening that we can see on Twitter now and the role of Twitter in society and politics now, and also how lasting it's going to be and, and in which arenas has it made a deep change? You know, have we, are we experiencing a deep change and in which arenas are we not really yet? So is there any, uh, I guess, real-time data that you'll be waiting for first or are things that you'll be doing next uh, to analyze the, the latest uh, set of transitions or that you're expecting from others uh, or anything else we didn't get to? Um, yeah. So one of the things that, um, you know, we brought up the far right earlier, um, a, a project that I've been working on um, with a couple of my students here and Allison Archer, who's a professor at the University of Houston, is looking at how... Um, Trump used his tweets uh, when he was in the presidency to legitimate far-right outlets like OANN and Newsmax. We find evidence of that um, both in uh, increased coverage by mainstream outlets of those far-right outlets, also in increases of appearances by the GOP, members of Congress on those outlets. Um, and I think what that shows us is that, you know, in any social platform that has this sort of confluence of powerful people, um, that powerful people can use it to push, you know, their particular agenda or perspective in ways that have implications widely outside the platform itself. Um, and I think that, you know, will another platform emerges uh, that has that same power, I think is going to be the thing that I'm sort of trying to pay attention to the most. Um, and I think it will, it's also going to be one of the things that I'm really sort of watching for and, and thinking about is like, what is, you know, so far, Musk hasn't turned off um, the academic API, right, in the way that that people uh, access tweets, right, for research. Um, but, you know, who knows, he could at any moment. So I think, you know, thinking about what that, you know, potential lack of data availability um, is going to mean for, for researchers um, is something that I'm also really paying attention to. Um, because... I'm worried about it because I think even if Twitter dies tomorrow, like we really need to understand what has just happened, um, you know, to be able to sort of contextualize it. And so I, I'm sort of thinking about data access uh, in that, you know, in, in regards to just sort of the platform as well. Um, and I think like one of the things that I'm I'm really looking for, and, and so we discussed this earlier, but I think is, are there going to be... Um, mass exoduses of the groups of people who have made Twitter as socially and politically important as it has been. Um, because that will mean that if what you want to study is society and power, which are the things that I'm really interested in as sort of the root of it, then you're going to have to go someplace else, right? And, and what is going to be the struggle for another platform or medium to be the place where those you know folks go? I think it's going to be an important one, right? Because without a doubt, you know, for all the ills and all the goods, Twitter has been that place. And so will something else emerge and, and who's going to be in charge of that, right? Because we see the impact in Musk, in Jack Dorsey before him, in Mark Zuckerberg, of a single person having so much control over these really important spaces for politics. Um, and 
you know, sometimes the devil, you know, is uh, at least more comfortable than the one you don't. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes you should check out next, all linked on our website. How news and social media shape American voters. How misperceptions and online norms drive cancel culture. Did Facebook really polarize and misinform the 2016 electorate? How news and social media shape American voters. And how the news economy drives local news. Thanks to Shannon McGregor for joining me. Please check out Legitimating a Platform and then listen in next time.